Gratitude That's my everyday Have you ever looked up at the stars and just wondered what it all means? Asking yourself, how did we get here and where are we going? When I look out into the world, I see so many people getting lost in their stories, rarely thinking about or asking the bigger, unanswerable questions of the universe. Like what's the purpose of life? How did we come to be? And what happens when we die? This is pretty much all I think about. So I decided to start asking others what they thought as well. So grab a cup of coffee, open your mind, and enjoy the conversation. We are the first generation probably that on this gigantic, vast level, we're able to have these conversations to explore the layers. And I think very often about the deeper that you can swim, the more likely you are to drown. And when we don't have the tools that are necessarily available to us, as we go deeper into these oceans of ourselves, confronting and and finding some beautiful nuggets of who we are, we're also confronted with a lot of the stories where we were left to sink on our own. But to sink is to grow and is to learn to adapt to swim deeper within ourselves. All right. Welcome to another episode of Quantum Coffee. Really excited about today's guest. His name is Kaveh. Kabusi, he is a emergency medical professional, works in the ER, and he has got a very fascinating perspective on life. And this is probably one of the longest episodes I've done, but I'm sure it will go by fast because the conversation flows so beautifully, so smoothly. Me and Kaveh dive deep into a ton of different concepts, uh, the usual purpose of life, the definition of God what happens when we die. And it's just really interesting hearing a perspective of a man that's around so much physical trauma all the time. We t- he talks about, you know, the, the mental and emotional manifestations into the physical, uh, his own journey with uh, a tumor manifesting on his neck through a time of uh, acute uh, anger and energy that he was feeling, um, you know, and he's confronted with death uh, quite a bit being in the medical profession in the ER. And um, he's a very wise man, very intelligent. And I love talking conversations about spirituality and science and, you know, the things that he's bringing into the medical profession, especially his job at his hospital, sharing his perspective and just, you know, bringing more of a human element and love and presence into his profession to really help um, people really, when he sees people, they're navigating some really challenging times in their lives. So love this man. And I know you're going to love this conversation and, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy, but before we dive into the episode, I want to share uh, a little bit about what I'm working on with the heart collective, uh, my community for former male professional athletes. If you haven't checked it out yet, go to theheartcollective.com. That's H-A-R-T, theheartcollective.com. And we have a newsletter for you to keep in, uh, in touch with us and follow along. Even if you're not a professional athlete and you want to you know, see what we're doing, seeing what we're building, you can follow along. We will be providing uh, different opportunities for content and some cool things in the works moving forward. So <clears throat> if you're interested in following along in the project I'm working on, the community that I'm building, um, 
definitely go check it out. And if you are a former professional athlete who is looking for a community, looking for a place to learn, to grow, to feel supported, to dive deeper into the stories of who we are in order to reach our fullest potential and make a better impact in the world, go check it out. Community is growing. We're building momentum and we are just getting started. Uh, first retreats coming out in June and we have another retreat in September. So those are coming together. If you're interested, make sure you follow along. And also I'd like to plug what my wife's working on because it's about to go live. She's been working on this tech platform called Growmotely. So visit growmotely.com if you are a small to medium-sized business looking for full-time remote professionals globally. Uh, it's a job board, but it's more than that. It is a culture-building tool to build a fully remote team. My wife has been doing this for... She's been an entrepreneur for 17 years, but she's been fully remote with all of her companies, the multiple companies that she's built. Some of them she's sold. She's been doing it fully remote for the past six years. And she is really passionate about bringing this lifestyle choice to not only entrepreneurs, but to professionals looking to create more freedom in their lives. You know, one of the highest values both me and Sarah both share is our freedom, being able to create the life that we want to live. And as business owners, both of us doing it fully remote has been huge. And I know Sarah's really passionate about it. She's passionate about sharing this opportunity for all of us to create the lives that we really want to live with the freedom to work when we want to, with the people that we want to, and building projects that we're passionate about. So go check that out. Go to remotely.com to see what she's working on. It's launching very soon. And uh, if you're looking for a job or you're looking to hire, go check it out. And also on the same point, me and Sarah are launching our very own podcast. I know I've got two of them and uh, she's got a couple herself, but we, since we've met, we've, you know, really had some expansive growth and energy between the two of us. And we've learned a lot from each other and we felt called to share our journey with all of you and how we consciously relate um, with the baby on the way, how we're going to continue to grow and create the life that we want to live, uh, introducing a child into the world as well. Uh, the home birth, um, the resistances that we've felt from uh, close friends and family in that decision, um, you know, how we interrelate with each other, how we navigate some of our own stories and fears and uh, how we're building our businesses. Just basically a behind the scenes look in this really unique kind of reality show audio experience, which we are really excited bringing to you. The first season is launching mid-February. And if you want to check it out, you can check out the trailer at loveinlifepodcast.com. That's love, the letter N, lifepodcast.com. Put your email in there. We got a trailer going up. So don't forget to subscribe. And the first season is launching very soon. And season two will be coming out shortly after, uh, which will be kind of the home birth and the process and bringing in little baby Luca into our lives and into the world. And we're really just excited about sharing that journey with all of you. Um, I think that's it. Is there anything else I want to, I want to plug? Um, all the show notes has everything. So check it out. Go follow my newsletter. If you haven't already, uh, put out a newsletter, thoughtful Thursdays, uh, my update of the week and my thoughts for the week, things I've been contemplating, a book of the week on there as well. You don't want to miss that. And uh, yeah, check out my other podcast, check out the Heart Collective. 
And if you feel called, review, rate, share this podcast with those you love. Uh, I know you're going to really enjoy this conversation with Kaveh and uh, would love to hear your thoughts on it. Leave a, leave a comment or reach out to me or him directly on our social platforms. All of that is in the show notes. And I love you all deeply. And thank you so much for the continued support. And uh, without further ado, enjoy this conversation. Love you all. Kave, what's up, man? Great to see you again, dude. Yeah, I'm so stoked about this conversation and hearing your uh, your perspective on some of these unanswerable questions of the universe. I know you got a lot of uh, wisdom to share. Uh, how do you say your last name? Kabusi. Kabusi. Kave Kabusi. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your journey, who you are up to this moment, and then we can dive into uh, some of the other concepts of reality. Word. All right. So Joe, thanks for having me this morning. And I love the conversation that we had to prime our, our connection for today. I'm looking up at the CN Tower right now uh, from my, my window here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, for wherever anyone's listening. And um 34-year-old dude working in emergency medicine in a hospital about an hour north of Toronto, close to my parents. Uh, before COVID, it was an opportunity to be able to spend time with them because it's tough in our life of go, go, go to find time for the connections that really matter. So put myself intentionally in a hospital that was past where my parents were in order to have them uh, be on my pathway to come back in order to see them like once or twice a week if possible. But with COVID, it made the connections a little bit more difficult, but mama was still able to meet me on the highway and give me food, especially when this whole thing was starting up. Um, I am born to immigrant parents from Iran who came here uh, just after the revolution. My mom went to California and my dad came to Toronto. And when they were deciding where to live, they did a road trip across uh, Canada. And when they were in Quebec, it was fall and the season, the, the leaves were changing. And my mom, like she felt this thing inside of her and just, she felt connected to the country. And she said, we're going to bring our children up here. And when we came to this world, uh, she had myself and then my brother four years later, and then my sister 10 years after me. So I'm the oldest of three children. That's quite the spread. Yeah. 10 years apart and then four years for you and your brother. Yeah. Yeah. Then my mom had two miscarriages in between my brother and my sister. And I mean, those are really confrontational moments for a parent when they're confronted with life ending. But I saw that the morning that my mom did and the, the amount of excitement, contentment and relief when my sister came to this world. And um, I've been as to the best of my ability, the, the guides for and support for my brother and my sister. But that's also been a source of some guilt at times because I wasn't able to be present the way I would have loved to. So I, my parents brought me to learn English, French, and Persian or Farsi when I was in Canada, thankfully. I hated going to Persian school on Fridays, but now I'm so thankful for it because it now I know like it invites that different part of the mind to be able to process things. And in a practice like emergency medicine where communication is so important, I'm able to dialect and speak to people to understand what their needs are in that moment. Uh, I was probably living coasting through life uh, until I was about 20 years old and I had a tumor in my neck. And that tumor really confronted me with my mortality in a way that I don't think many people have that opportunity until they have some type of traumatic experience that's so confrontational where they feel their life being pried away from them. 
but I didn't integrate with that for like six years. As far as I knew, I was going to die. And then as far as I knew, as far as I felt, I was missed. Uh, I wasn't supported well by the doctors in that system. And up until that point, my parents wanted me, me to be a doctor, but I didn't want to be the thing that my parents wanted me to be. But when I felt like I was not supported by these by the system, I said, I'm going to go in to make sure that I support others where I didn't feel supported. And if anything, give them the reassurance that they need, because reassurance is medicine in and of itself. And um, it was a journey and a half because I didn't get into medicine easily. My GPA dropped. I ended up having to go through the back door into medicine through the Caribbean, got back into Canada. But it took me three years of going through the residency uh, attempt to get into a residency, sorry, cycle that was stifled by my grandma dying during one of the board exams that made me really confront over and over again what my identity was, who I am, how I show up in the world, and how the world really values people for what they do and not who they are. Yet our soul wants to be held for who we are, not what we do. And been that message of support to recognize and see people and meet people that way as I'm navigating through life to remind them that first see yourself and in seeing yourself, we can welcome others to be seen uh, for who they are as well too. And, you know, I, I'm meeting here, I'm meeting a dude who I know about your past, but I know the soul that I've met. And I, I remember moments when I saw you in Tulum before the Temascal or uh, certain times that we were sitting around the circle, one another and your attention and your peace and your calm and your poise and your groundedness that I was met with. And that's, that's a human right there. That's a man who's, who's not seeing and experiencing life through the identities, seeing it through the stillness and the silence and the listening. And that's, that's where I feel like life is found and felt the most. So I, I, I try and taste that as much as possible and invite others into that too. Yeah. Thanks brother. Appreciate that. I feel the same way. I really feel really grounded in your presence and I'm, I'm stoked to kind of hear your, your perspective. So you work, you work in an ER, right? Yeah. As a medical doctor handling emergencies, talk a little bit about that. And especially with what's going on in the world, how you kind of navigate that, especially with, you know, talk about the Western medical system and how, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to say broken, but maybe your perspective on kind of being involved in the directly involved in the Western medical system and how maybe there's some stuff that's not so up to snuff as far as, yeah, you know, yeah. where we're headed. Yeah, this could be its own podcast on its <laughs> and, and its own multiple volumes. But um, what I probably feel the most drawn to speak about specifically is the psychology that takes a lot of practitioners into the medical field. And I think very often about, I know that this is such a geographically different, but a lot of people are told to be doctors from a very young age and they're primed to do so not because of what they want to do, but because of an expectation that's been put on them. And then on top of that, they see how some people's egos can be stroked, especially in the form of intelligence for the thing that they do and it's a mask and hooked with the nobility of being able to help and serve others. Then you take a lot of people who want to be welcomed in and supported and received by the world, but they're neglected very often, like more often than not by the, the peers that they're surrounded by. So they have this certain level of introversion that kicks in. So now you have someone who is a bit more withdrawn from people, introverted, not being received by them, who says, because I'm not being received for who I am, I'm going to compensate for myself in a way that is received by the world in another way. 
And oh, intelligence is a way that I can still be find value within myself. And there's this job called medical doctor that the world seems to hold over here. Suddenly, if someone says they're a doctor, you pay attention a little more. So now you go into medicine and you work your butt off, maybe not necessarily fine tuning your social skills, but your mind is really, really firing up and you're learning and you're becoming feeling that intelligence and you're feeling suddenly of worth and of purposefulness. And I think when a lot of doctors get into medicine, they start deciding, what am I going to even do as a practice? And there's the generalist and then the specialist. The generalist is just general. There's nothing sexy about being general for the most part. But then a specialist, oof, wow, ego stroked all the time. You can be a specialist in a certain thing. And I feel this every time I'm on a call talking with a specialist as opposed to them. I'm like, can I speak to the human, not the person that this identity is showing up as? Hmm. I went into emergency medicine because I felt like that is the opportunity where you have to, it's considered a generalist, by the way, some people consider a specialist, but there's this hierarchy of psychology that exists even in this environment of people who didn't necessarily develop the best capacity to approach with social skills, but they are really good at output of protocols, showing up for others and helping people in their times of need. But I feel like how we define help is so fragmented from what true help actually is. And um, in the emergency room, I feel like it's one of the few places where you can actually truly help people in their time of need. But uh, a lot of people who I think have come in and experienced an emergency position versus how I approach it is I'm always hearing what their problem is that they come in with, but always tap, tap into the psychosocial component of what their life experience is. And you meet people in their eyes when they're coming with a problem of where they're fearful of some aspect of their health or their life being taken away from them or imminently is. And um, I feel like there's been this thing that's evolved through there where it's become almost like a spiritual holistic ER that my, my, my colleagues will jokingly say like, dude, do, do you think we should smudge this room before like the next patient comes in? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we should do that. There's a certain energy that's in there. But <laughs> a lot of your coworkers are kind of into this, the spiritual stuff. Is that directly related because you're bringing that kind of energy into it and they're getting that from you? Or is it just kind of the, the, the place that you are? Cause I know that's not a very common thing. I would, I would think it's not common and it's been met with so much resistance at the start, but then like they started picking up on that. I think when I got my first review from patients about like how they felt they're like, I've never had a contact with a physician like that before. And it was, it was reaffirming that that's the case. And, I think very often the people that they're meeting is the person that I would like to meet if I'm coming to a place in my time of need. Mm. And uh, like, I think about a time, like I, I have this thing that, and I don't know how appropriate this is to say, but with every patient that passes, I do this with people who are alive, but I'll, I'll meet people in their eyes. But with every patient that passes, I'll spend a minute or two at the very least eye gazing with them. And after they've passed. After they've passed. And there's... What's that experience like? There's something incredibly cathartic about that that's so beyond words where you're looking at someone who you don't know any of their story yet you feel like you do. And um, I could share that I was at six days before I went to Burning Man in 2017. There was this uh, patient that came in uh, it was a 42-year-old guy who drowned. And for an hour and a half, I was trying to bring him back and Everyone in the room was saying, give up on this guy. There's no chance he's coming back. I did everything in my capability that I could 
to bring him back. He was young. He was a father of three. He just came back from a trip. I think he had a shot, shallow water blackout from doing breath work by water. Mm. And um, when I saw that it was futile, he, he, he passed and I came around the room and I had a tear in my eye and I felt so deeply connected to him. And there's, of course, that relatability that you, you feel there. But I'm looking down at him and I'm feeling that there's something else brewing there. I go to Burning Man and um, this is the synchronicities of life, right? Uh, I go to Burning Man. And on the first day that's there, one of the guys in my camp at Love Cow says, you know, last year when I was at the burn, I felt profound dehydration. And so I would love for us to create a story space where we have stories about water. So we go and we go to this, this, this thing called the opium den, which has no relationship to opium. But uh, we go in this room and we start, people start sharing their stories. And I come in in the middle of the story when one of these guys is sharing how he had drowned and how he had been revived. And uh, I just came in at the very end of that story. Three or four days later, I'm at the other side of Burning Man, like uh, called at a place called Camp Mystic. And uh, I, I walk into there and there's this incredible energy, but I feel like I'm being wrapped into an experience that doesn't belong to mine, but yet, I, yet I'm involved in it. And it, I'm not making any association with what I had experienced six days ago in this. This music is playing. The energy is incredible. You feel like you're in a jungle. And this woman comes up to me and she says, can I do energy work on you? I'm like, uh, okay, sure. She starts doing this thing and it's in flow with the music. And she put, I'm getting shivers right now thinking about it again. She puts her hands around my chest as she's flowing. And I feel my chest tighten all of a sudden. And I'm like, what is this feeling? Then she, the music does this stop, stop. And as she does that, the, the music stops and she puts her hand up here. The guy who had passed space shows up here. And then the, the, on the next time here, the guy who had been sharing the story about having drowned in, uh, in my camp at Burning Man, his face shows up here. And then the music almost merged and so did their faces. And they were the same person. My guy who was at Burning Man is from San Francisco and this person who passed is in Canada. But they merged and it was the exact same face. And I just like this thing went through me that made no sense. But it was then I, I turned to the right and he shows up out of the entire playa of Burning Man. He shows up right there and he's next to me. And I, I tell him, I'm like, I have to share something with you, man. I don't know what the reason for this story is. I had just told two people about it before. Then this woman has this moment. And then this guy shows up right here of all places at Burning Man. I share the story with him and I don't recognize what it is yet until I get to the moment where I express what I had seen with this man and with him. And he breaks into tears immediately. And he looks at me and he says, Kaveh, because I said, I don't know what this was for. I don't know why I experienced that. And he said, you, you were my messenger. You were my messenger of the reminder of the appreciation of life because he didn't survive the same experience that I did. And my, my gratitude for my confrontation with my mortality and my immortality that I had been living before got reconfronted with. And so thank you. And the invasiveness of this guy's like recurring theme that I had in my mind where I kept seeing his eyes no longer was anymore. And so the, the message had been completed and wow. um, yeah, it's these type of experiences in the ER. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, man. I mean, my, the question that comes up is, 
have you always been open to this kind of like energy work and spirituality, especially coming from like the Western medical system? And I know that like a lot of, you know, MDs are like really scientific thinking, you know, they're, 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 you know, I don't know if they have like these spiritual beliefs. It's definitely not as open-minded probably as you are. Where did this kind of openness to this kind of world, were you always like this or any brought this into your education as you went through the medical system or did this kind of have a spiritual awakening? Like where, where did this, openness come from? Uh, when I had that tumor, when I was 20, I think my parents primed curiosity, like my, my whole life, I was very grateful for them to make a lot of space for if I wanted something, there was never it given right away. There was always work that was put on them. It's a very immigrant mentality. Like, even if you can give something easily, we won't give it until you work your butt off. If you want some type of information, go to a library and look it up. I feel like one of the things that's come up with the, the way that we have tech available at our hand is it's killed curiosity to an extent, because when you have, you're like, what's uh, the, the temperature? Like, how do you translate hundred degrees Celsius to Fahrenheit? For example, you just Google it right away and it's done. There's no, uh, none of that algorithmic process of your mind that is invited in and curiosity and imagination is made in the spaces where you allow yourself to ruminate on it. And it's stifled when we have tech that's available for you to, to just confront that right away. And so when I had my tumor uh, happen and I had the surgery and I had the misdiagnoses and I had the recurrence and I had the radiation therapy, a lot of these moments when you're confronted with your mortality and you're not making sense of it, you're trying to figure it out. And one of the leading parts I have is that we all have as men, especially is figuring it out parts. And in my inability to figure that out, I couldn't figure myself out. And for about six years after that tumor, there were so many things that were curveballs that were coming into my life that I kept feeling crushed in my set, my lack of sense of self. But there was a couple uh, entheogenic experiences that kept reminding me, like showing me this quality of life that was beyond the output of doing. And like, I remember one experience when I was feeling so much pity and shame and darkness and sadness. Uh, I'd, I'd experienced two years of anxiety and panic attacks um, where I felt no support from anyone. Uh, I started taking SSRIs and the, the medicine, about three months into taking it, I kept having anxiety and panic attacks. The medicine wasn't helping me much. I woke up one morning and I heard this voice that said, the next time the panic attack comes on, ask it to go harder. And I look around my room. I'm like, what, where's this voice coming from? And it said, the next time your heart beats fast and you're scared of dying from it, tell it to go faster. I'm like, okay. That evening I have a, another panic attack and I'm like, go harder, take me out, like kill me. And the moment I did that, the panic attacks that would normally last from 15 minutes to an hour went away within a minute. I'm like, what did I just confront within myself? Was that a part of me that I had just spoken to? And when I started having these dialogues with myself more and more, I started recognizing that like the, the window that I had been seeing myself, that totality of my human experience was completely devoid of this witnesser capacity that I had. And so when I was on the psychedelic experience, I still hadn't mourned a lot of the stories. I, uh, I was with, I saw my mom and the spotlight shined on her and she was just smiling at me so lovingly. And when I had my tumor, I thought that I let my parents down because all the work that they had done for me, I was not going to be able to survive through. I was going to die. And I didn't want my mom and dad to see me when I was going for the surgery for the radiation. 
And it crushed me because I had so much pity there and, and shame that I had let them down. But when these, these experiences kept bringing me to the smile and love that my parents had, I was just reminded of like this quality of life that's on the other side of all the stories that we tell ourselves. And when I was carrying myself more and more through the hospital, seeing that beyond the applicability that I have within myself, every single human being is confronted with these barriers to this, this thing that they could have with life if they were to just get past or at least confront the story that's preventing them from experiencing it. And every single doctor is carrying some story that tells them they, that they need to uphold that role, responsibility, level of intelligence in order for them to recognize who they are. And for them to lose that would mean for them to die to themselves. And mm. I feel like uh, if I start doing this, it's, it's been with these doctors that are in my hospital first, I can see that that type of impact qualitatively, where you're not telling someone to be any other way, invites them to reconsider themselves at the very least. And maybe they'll stay exactly as they are. But also the, in reconnecting with, with those themselves on the other side of those stories, that's where you reconnect with your spirit. And we have a homie named Ryan Burkholder, final thing I'll say. He says, spirituality isn't doing things, uh, he's, like, he says spirituality isn't doing things spiritually. It's doing things with your spirit present. Mm. And that really resonates with me all the time, that your spirit is more qualitatively present. You can taste it on the other side of all the stories that we are bound to living to uphold what we think is who we are. Yeah. Right. That's all the ego is, right. Is just to construct a story of who we think we are and how we relate and relate to the world and really deconstructing that and understanding like, wait, who am I on a deeper level confronting those stories with curiosity and being able to move those stories. And every time you move those stories and are able to, to maybe kill those stories, like that ego death, you're still there. So what is that kind of deeper part that is still there witnessing? And then you can kind of create the story you want. And that brings me perfectly to this First question I like to ask everybody, what's the point? Like, what's the purpose of life? Why do we have this, this journey that we're born into? We, you know, our program indoctrinated, these stories are created on how we're supposed to interact with the world and what success looks like and what happiness looks like. And then all of a sudden, you know, some of us are, you know, I'm, I'm grateful enough to, to have gone through experiences that have forced me to look at the story of who I am and be able to retell the story of who I am, but what's the point of all of it? Like, why, why are we even here to go through this whole experience? Yeah. Well, <laughs> something that I reflect on is two things. Uh, first is that I, I ask myself, what's more potent than a life lived while alive to your life itself. And that is confronted with every single story that prevents you from that, that, that is presence. If I were to put it into one phrase and like that presence has intentionality, consciousness and awareness all encompassed there, but it's very tough for us to get there. And when we do, for the most part, it's fleeting because stories hijack who we are. I would love to clarify for everyone here today and whoever's listening, at least I, I haven't found any irrefutability refutability to this, that there is no purpose to life other than procreation. Your DNA doesn't give a single fuck about any of your stories. It just wants to procreate. And so mm. you will set up your entire life around optimizing your chance for procreative survival in drawing that partner in, 
whatever competitive arenas that you have entered into to succeed in that, to not die to that, you will, you will, uh, optimize yourself, whether it's wealth, whether it's beauty, whether it's uh, intelligence, whatever it may be. So purpose is not found. It's not, uh, it's not hiding behind a tree waiting for you to discover it. It's already there. It's deeply embedded. It's encoded into us. What everyone can find in their life and what we find day by day and our soul recognizes is purposefulness. And that's where I differentiate the two. So purpose to life is already defined for every single person. And that's the biological need to procreate. And so we create these stories of trying to elevate ourselves in order to find a partner, which is why we would even create an ego story of, I need to find success and wealth because that's how I attract a more attractive partner. Yeah. Wow. That's a very interesting perspective. And so you're about to separate kind of the soul aspect, right? So there's our deeper levels to what that is. Yeah. Well, well, purposefulness, if I were to different, ask you to differentiate purposefulness versus purpose, well, where, where would you go with that? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm like, I mean, it's very fascinating. I, was, <laughs> I never thought about it like, like that. And I think even widening the lens of what's even the point that we have physical bodies to biologically be imprinted with the need to procreate. Like, you know, what is, what is the deeper, like, why do we even have an experience to create the stories to want to procreate? Mm-hmm. Like continue to widen the lens out even deeper. Because <laughs> I ask people that question. A lot of people audibly go to like, well, what's my purpose? Like, what am I here to do? And, you know, that's one thing is going on a journey of figuring out like, how do I find meaning in life? And, you know, I've, you know, I've done a bunch of psychedelic experiences as well. And I've, I've kind of widened the lens out so much and been, you know, I just did ayahuasca last week and I was in the, the realm of infinite potential and it was very overwhelming and realizing that there really is no meaning to life except the meaning that we decide to give it. And so people were constantly trying to find purpose in their own lives of why they even exist. But I asked this question in almost like the deepest, widest lens possible. Like, why are we even here to even explore what purpose even means? Mm-hmm. That's well, if, if there, if there's this, this chip within us that has this, this vessel, like this, it, I, I picture like a string right now that you have to, you have a bunch of clothes that's hanging on it and that clothes stays on it temporarily. It comes in wet. And then throughout the day, it's, it's exposed to a bunch of environments. And then by the end it's dry. And then it, it, if you leave that too long, it'll just dissolve. That string is the ether that connects us all. And through that string is that DNA that we all have, that we get an opportunity to experience life through. Like human beings are meaning makers. And we all like, I'm sure we're we're dead to hearing that over and over again, but like meaning is found in purposefulness and meaning is understood outside of that story that like, I think it hijacks us from so much of life to question even what purpose is if we were clear that your only purpose is specifically this, just to procreate, and you were doing every single thing to optimize that, like just think going to ayahuasca, for example, is there's a part of your story that you feel is hindering your quality of life experience. And if your quality of life experience is hindered, either a layer of your subconscious, unconscious, conscious, or the witnesser part of you feels that it is not going to optimize its chance for survival. And so it goes to confront the story that's preventing it from experiencing life in itself through a medium that it trusts in the form of ayahuasca. 
and it trusts because it doesn't feel like it's going to get murdered from it. If crystal meth has like a 10% chance of killing you, but it gives you a chance to see yourself, are you going to go reach into that? Much less likely because there's still that 10% chance. But the ayahuasca experience is what? Very minimal, almost no chance of dying unless there's some confounding medical thing there. And so you know that I will have a better chance of loosening up this place where I feel like my life or quality of it is hindered and my capacity to continue is hindered if I don't resolve this thing. And so I go to that medicine. Yeah. I mean, I very much, when I was in, in infinite potential and was able to tell myself any story that I wanted to be, I started losing my sense of the story that I'm living now. And it was actually very frightening and my, my like sense of self was dissolving. So it was almost like I was confronted with this death. Right. Yeah. And understanding that there was still an aspect of me that was alive. Right. And so I think that's, you know, all these near death experiences and, you know, psychedelic ethnogenic uh, medicines that, you know, have this experience of something greater than yourself is a form of ego death. And until you can kind of understand that you don't really understand there's an essence in a part of you that is more than just this physical body that wants to procreate. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I get stuck there when I think about that specifically. Not I get stuck, but that's where those moments where whenever I'm there, I think we're these creatures that are just trying to peel away 57 layers of an onion of ourselves, trying to just figure this thing out. Well, that's the beautiful thing, right? The onion, like realizing that the onion is infinite Mm -hmm. and, understanding what infinity is, right? Like, and this is why I love this exploring these concepts. And I truly believe that the universe was created in order for us to experience, you know, like the idea of like God created this existence and separation for it to have an experience of itself. And the beautiful part is we have the ability to explore and question and have curiosity about why are we here? What's the existence mean? And I truly believe that there is no actual answer because if there was an actual answer that we could get to, then there would be an endpoint, and then the whole thing would dissolve and not exist. Mm-hmm. For there to be an infinite experience, it has to kind of fold in on itself through paradox. And so the ability for us to question gives us an experience of what it is, but there can't actually be an answer. And it's like the idea of the hydra head. Like every time you have a question, you cut the head off. It leads to two more questions and then two more questions. And then that leads you into infinity and infinite potential is very overwhelming for people. So what they do is they come back and attach to ideas and meeting like, this is it. This is it. Mm-hmm. This is why we're here. This is the reason, or this is my purpose. This is my meaning. And they get lost in these stories and attached to them. And they're scared to let them go because when you start letting stuff go, you realize, Oh, there is no meaning. And people want to have meaning because it's an overwhelming place to be, to just be in kind of the, the infinite void. Well, where's that question coming from? Is it from the soil of your subconscious or is it from the roots of your, your uh, unconscious or is it a conscious question that's coming or is it the witnesser that asks and who's answering? Is it this part or is it, or is it this? So now you're, you're asking from what lens you're currently perceiving that. And I think uh, like when you were fearful in that moment, uh, we're fearful, not of the, of losing, like we're not fearful of the unknown. We're fearful of losing what we know. And, mm. and that, that known experience is how we perceive the world. Like if you, like you said, infinite, what, what was the word you said? Infinite something that you, infinite think. potential, infinite potential. If you didn't have the words to even express infinite potential, if a six-year-old Joe was having an ayahuasca experience and he had the same thing, 
is he experiencing his infinite potential through words or is, is it beyond it? I would think it's beyond and he's unable to put it to words, but it's now as you've been able to confront a known terminology to express what infiniteness is and potential, now you are now you have a greater construct and arena for you to to understand your human experience and this is that's a, almost an invitation for us to always be confronting our barriers more and more for us to be able to dissolve them to step further and allow us to taste really the expansiveness of life that's available to all of us and catch where not catch lovingly hold where we felt we couldn't surpass mm. And where do, I mean, where do these barriers even come from? Cause you know, the six-year-old Joe, maybe even younger, but like the idea of a child, like not having the programming and the stories created yet, they might already be living in infinite potential, right? Cause they have imaginations. Like if a child wants to experience something, they'll go make believe so that they can experience it. And us, we get this at some point in our lives, this programming of what we think we need to do in order to relate with reality, right? right. And so, I mean, what if that child is living in infinite potential and all of a sudden there's this story created and then I am kind of trying to work back backwards through that story to come back to the innocence of, oh, I am just the experiencer of this experience without any kind of the stories trying to, you know, cloud the lens in which I view reality. Yeah, yeah, well... Have you, like, I don't know, what's the connection that you have with your parents specifically? Do you feel like they have conversations of this higher order? Hell no. We are the first generation probably that on this, this gigantic, vast level, we're able to have these conversations to explore the layers. And I think very often about the deeper that you can swim, the more likely you are to drown. And Mm. when we don't have the tools that are necessarily available to us, as we go deeper into these oceans of ourselves, confronting and and finding some beautiful nuggets of who we are. We're also confronted with a lot of the stories where we were left to sink on our own, but to Mm -hmm. sink is to grow and is to learn to adapt, to swim deeper within ourselves. Right. I think uh, like that child with what you're saying is, is infinite, but then they're told how life is and how it isn't more likely. Apparently by the time you're 18, you've heard no 180,000 times, 150 to 180,000 times. And yes, 5,000 times. So we're conditioned and primed to live in a way that's told us how not to live as opposed to live. And it's, it's, it's good, but also not because like that infiniteness is meeting a wall as opposed to being invited into another way. And I think mm-hmm. about like, if when you're a kid, there was maybe a jar of cookies and you go and you grab a cookie cause it's a, it's a cookie. And your mom and dad didn't say you could have a cookie, but you went for that cookie and you went for it. And you're like, you're plowing this cookie away. And mom's like, did you take a cookie from the jar? And she didn't want you to do that. But you're like, yeah, of course I did. And she's like, you're grounded. You go to the room now and you're like, what the heck? I was just truthful and honest about something delicious. Now, maybe next time I have to be untruthful in order to get that thing. And so now you steal the cookie next time. And then when you're asked, Now there's some untruthfulness that's meant because your authenticity of an experience was hindered by some construct that was told at least like for the time being that you were not able to do. And then we like expand on that. And like, we have these elements of subconscious and unconscious truth, untruthfulness that's put into our lives. And then we consciously leverage it at times because it works for us because we get that, that cookie in the jar and whatever it is, maybe it's a partner or it's a job or it's money or whatever it is at the expense of truthfulness. And 
you and I, I'm sure feel it more that when you actually witness what untruthfulness feels like, it simmers in your soul in a very uncomfortable way. And you choose to like step into truth as opposed to that is. So now I, I, I reconfront that type of story where I was told no about the cookie. This didn't happen to me necessarily, but I feel like very often we were confronted with that where our truthfulness was punished. And so we learned to have relative untruthfulness from time to time if it didn't serve us. Yeah. I love that story because there's a lot of, uh, obviously we're doing this deep kind of healing work and you know, it's a generational thing too, but even talking to like my parents, for example, they say like, what is this like trauma that you need to heal? Like, I don't really have any traumas. And I think a lot of people are like, well, I didn't really have like a traumatic experience, but that story was so simple. Right. And we all, every single one of us went through experiences as we grew older that fogged and changed and created the lens in which we view reality. And so with some little story like that is not, it's not a traumatic event, yeah. but it shaped the way in which we perceive reality. And a lot of it is in our unconscious. Mm-hmm. And so we're all have all these unconscious patternings on how we relate to the world. And so that's really where the, the curiosity and diving deeper into the layers of who we are and into the unconscious into like, what are these stories and where did they come from and how I re- relate to reality. So I love that you said that because it just makes it accessible for people to be like, oh, something as simple as that could be the reason why I'm not truthful in my relationship or I don't feel confident in being able to express myself how I feel. Just something as small as that. And every single one of us has gone through that stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And trauma is relative to the person. Like the, uh, There's this beautiful book by, well, there's this author, his name is James Hollis. And he wrote a book called The Eden Project. Uh, and uh, yeah, The Eden Project. And... Under Saturn Shadow. Under Saturn Shadow is this incredible book on uh, understanding where men have been wounded and where they're grieving. And Eden Project is the confrontation of, uh, invites you into the reflection of men's relationship with other and uh, the search for the magical other specifically. And the terminology that he uses for understanding when someone experiences something is the affective load. So when you feel like a someone that you you uh yells at you someone that you don't really care about they may yell at you but you don't feel a thing but then it's someone that stakes are much higher they yell at you and you feel it there's this energy that you feel that's even deeper so the affective load embeds itself deeper into our psyche and our experience and in addition to what the ego is these constructs of the mind the highway that the ego expresses itself through our bodies is through our autonomic nervous system the parasympathetic, the sympathetic nervous system. And the autonomic system is this nervous system is this beautiful interplay that expresses how our stories are psychosomatically either internalized or expressed. So if you are feeling a stress and you need to get out of that space, maybe your autonomic nervous system is going to divert the blood away from your digestive system for you to mobilize more blood for your muscles to get away. But if we are staying still and that stress is what we're perceiving and it's something that we're fearful of, that blood diverts away from our stomach, we still sit in place and now our body feels the stress of something that we are, it's, it's primed itself to have to get away from, but it, now it's not. And then anxiety and depression starts having, or stress, PTSD or whatever it is, some angst of some kind expresses itself in this, in our body. And to the degree that we were traumatized or hurt, or we perceived this hurting ourselves, 
or the or how much it could hurt us is the degree to which uh, this affective load of the energy that we feel that is of our ego that feels that we may die expresses itself through our body and through our, our autonomic nervous system. And then it'll express itself through heart beating really fast or our breathing changing or our body temperature uh, uh, diverting itself, or you get dizzy. And it's, it's so interesting to see how when a trauma has been internalized, our body, like Bezel van der Kolk says, body keeps the score for a reason. And it's, it's, it's almost directly proportional to how we perceive this could potentially hurt us, how it did and how it re-experiences our, it expresses ourselves. So when I think about my body feeling a visceral thing, as long as I'm not using some type of way to numb that feeling. It's a track for me to look to the other side of where I was hurt in the first place. And very often, a lot of our exiled traumas, which is a terminology that internal family systems uses for us to look where we are not comfortable looking anymore, but that's where our greatest traumas lie. When I feel that before where I would have maybe like diverted into either like gambling, sex, drugs, alcohol, or working hard or sleeping, these are probably the six places where people hide the most when they're hurting. If you don't lean into any of those, you're able to lean back into where the story of the trauma is. And if you're able to sit very often, it's you acquire the tool to actually go back to the moment where you can sit with the other side of the affective load that's present there and you can relive that experience. And it may have been that jar where you had that cookie that you felt untruthful and you got punished for. And so you told yourself, I'm going to lie to my mom next time. Because if I tell her the truth that I took a cookie when she asked me, no, I may die. And that's what the, tra that's what the traumatic story is. As simple as that, yet completely uh, relative to the individual and how they mm. receive trauma. Beautifully put, man. And I'd love to hear more about the importance of, you know, from your medical perspective, the importance of healing these kind of stories and traumas that we and, and, and what they can lead to in physical, physically manifested disease that we might see. And like, you know, so many people see like, oh, I have, you know, a cancer or something that comes up and they don't relate it to this like energetic and, and emotional bodies that show up physically. Talk a little bit about your perspective from the medical profession with that. Hmm. Yeah. So there's theory meets uh, objective uh, experience versus my own as, um, subjective experience that can all be applied there. And I think the thing that ends up being most potent is when a human being speaks from what their true perspective is and not just what their idea is. Like I can invite hypotheses, but for myself, for example, um, that tumor that I had in my neck, when I was 19, I was dating a woman and uh, we went on separate trips. And when we came back from the trips, I, I had this feeling that something had happened and I organized the trip for all the people from her trip in Cuba, uh, Cancun and mine from Cuba to come together at this party, uh, at this, uh, after hours. And, uh, when we were there, I, I see this guy that's there. Interestingly, his name is the same name as my dad, Nick. And I have this feeling that something happened between him and her, uh, when they were down on the trip. And so I confront the guy and I'm on a, a molecule that makes you very happy. So it was tough to uh, really discern outside of that. And I, I was a very trusting person who gave trust until it was lost, as opposed to don't give trust until it's gained. Mm. And um, 
I asked the guy twice if there was anything that happened. And he said, no, he said, no. When I went and asked my, at that time, girlfriend, she said, no. But something in the energy of the, that room told me that it was yes. And so for four months, I kept coming back to telling her, like, did something happen there? My body is telling me yes. So my, like, my gut was screaming viscerally, yes. And I kept hearing no, and the stories were no. And not only that, I was met with these like projected transference of negativity. And it was, she was making my, I say she was making me, but she was very rude and mean at times. And I felt so belittled, but also that I deserved it for having punished her with these, like these things that I was saying. And I'm like, maybe there is actually something wrong with me. And finally, after four months, she's like, I'm going to leave you. Like, I can't keep doing this. So I made up this story that she, that this guy had actually, his best friend had like had a fight with him and he came and told me that it actually happened. I told her this story because it was like my last lifeline. And she's like, you still are pushing this. You know what? It's done. And so I'm like, wow, if she's saying it's done, it was a story like that where it's tough to like continue to be untruthful. Then this must actually be the case. We go and see this movie called The Last Kiss with Zach Braff. I don't know if you remember that movie from a while ago. And there's this dude that like has this great girl and he ends up going and being with this other woman. And I see her sitting next to me crying. And I'm like, oh, she must be thinking about all the times that she mistreated me over the past four months. We go down the escalator and, um, and uh, she looks at me and she's like, I have to tell you something. <laughs> I look at her and I'm like, oh my God, I knew it. And I just start punching metal. I start punching the ground and I'm, I'm feeling this anger inside of me. I didn't break any bones. So apparently I don't punch that hard. <laughs> uh, um, for four months I separated from her. Then I went through this phase of just going through like very uh, unconscious connections with women. Did she come in truth and say that something happened? Uh, she admitted it. In, yeah. So she admitted it in that moment. The stairs. And okay. after about 10 minutes started like calling me on saying like, hurt me or something like that. And I, I did something I've never done and I'll never do again was I put my arm up onto her neck and I put her against the wall and I didn't even recognize who I was. And I looked at her in the eyes where she was like boiling, wanting me to almost punish her. And I put her down and I left and um, I never raised my hand to a woman again, but that was like the closest I'd ever bring to this part of me that was so hurt. And so after four months, she was very much asking me to come back into that relationship. And I kept saying, no, no, no. And I was having these unconscious relationships. And on top of that, taking these, this medicine that was very much numbing me even further than what alcohol does. Uh, and I call it medicine because when you're hurting and you're trying to numb pain, even every therapeutic that you use that numbs is still medicinal because it's preventing you from that pain. And then after I came back from four months now and this rejection that I'd had of myself and this unconscious way of living, I touched my neck and I felt this thing there that I'd never felt before. And three doctors later who said it was nothing and a biopsy after that, I have a tumor in my neck. And this tumor was rejected by every doctor. And then the, the third doctor, by then my left face muscles had gone numb. I couldn't smile properly. This tumor had wrapped itself around my facial nerve. And, um, and did that tumor come up at such a peculiar time where I was dealing with such deep stress and rejection of myself and my body? 
And uh, after I had the surgery and the radiation, um, I had pain every single day in my face that was debilitating me. And uh, I started taking just Advil, Tylenol, cold compress. Then I started taking narcotics. And the narcotics were doing nothing but making me feel high. And I couldn't do anything. My quality of life for nine months was crushed after this surgery. And I, this pain was nonstop. And then one day, I just decided I'm going to talk to it. And I told my cells in my neck in that tumor, I said, I, like, I love you. I know we've been through a journey together. And I know that this, uh, there's a possibility of this having arisen from some anger. And I'm talking to myself at a time that, with words that don't make sense to me. And I've been taking these narcotics every day. And uh, I say this thing and I say, like, I love you. Like, I know we've been through a journey, but you don't need to express yourself through pain anymore because I'm here for you now. And it's really challenging my ability to continue on through life. I woke up the next morning and the pain was gone and it's never been back. And wow. like these moments where you have like, what the hell you talk to your body and you, where did, where did that come from? Like, was it just an initial intuitive, like nothing's working. Let me just see if I can get to know this thing and where it's originated from. Yeah. It, where does that call come from? It, it, it had to be intuitive because there was no one else that had prompted me to the consideration of talking to myself. And now when I'm in the ER, you see people who are having these advanced cancers or a certain type of medical pathologies. The easy thing is we're looking at mental health. When you see anxiety or depression, it's a refusal of you know, the way that your life, like the way that you're carrying yourself is rejecting a way of how your life actually wants to be. And you can see that in some way. And we have this, these intermittently when you have acute stressors that make you reconfront how you're carrying your life and how it's not sustainable. And it's asking you to adapt. And you either adapt or you, you succumb and you, you close off and you, you become stagnant. And in that stagnancy, the refusal of your ability to be able to adapt, your anti-fragility, is where depression and anxiety start to reside. And in that stagnancy, I, I, my theory is that your body recognizes itself as having a level of self-rejection that can manifest itself in either psycho, psychological pathology, psychosomatic pathology, or somatic uh, or, or visceral pathology in the form of cancers, malignancies, heart attacks, uh, blood clots. And it's tough to say that science is actually truthful there, but you see that over and over again. And uh, Stephen Pressfield in his book, The War of Art, said that he is this physician that would take uh, patients that were stage three, stage four cancer, and they had been told by medicine that like you might have not much time to live. And he, this guy, this doctor would take them and say, okay, if your life were to live exactly on your terms, the way that you wanted to live it before the stories you were told you had to live, that violin that you wanted to play, that field that you wanted to be in, that job that you wanted to do as an astronaut, what would that look like? And not only what would that look like, let's go live it now. And when you start, he started having these people go through these pathways, their tumors started regressing in ways that medicine could not really explain. But is it possible that our refusal of our life's calling is tolerable by our body for a certain amount of time? And then after a while, it just cannot sustain itself. And so malignancy to life is what ensues. And that I believe that to be true. And I can see that in the stressors that we experience day by day. And I can see that in individuals in, uh, in their pathologies. But uh, there's, it's tough to put that to, to scientific rigor. 
So it's going to be tough for medicine to accept that, but I can say, yeah, I was say is it challenging for you to, to, to have people come in and be experiencing these physical diseases and, 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 and like being able to see the energy that it is manifesting and like, how do you navigate having that conversation? And I ask because I think a lot of, you know, people in our generation see our parents or see somebody else that we really love and we see the way they're physically treating their body or the stories that they have, the anger that they're carrying, the anxiety and depression that they're going around with. And it's hard to be like, Hey, this is like a story that you need to work through on an internal level. But they, they just are, have been told by, you know, science and the medical system that like, this is a physical disease. I need to take, you know, something outside of myself, like a medication to help fight it. Like, how do you navigate that as a doctor being in the front lines of all of this? Mm-hmm. And advice that you would give to somebody that, you know, sees that in a loved one and they love them so much. It's like, hey, like eat better or fuel your body better or, or get outside and get some more sunlight or move your body, you know, and people just are lost to that simple fact of taking care of the physical vessel. Yeah. Well, in the ER, people are coming seeking support. And if you have, if you have a tool available to them that they didn't even recognize is available, but it is something that is the most potent thing, seeing themselves that's available to them, greater sense of self-awareness where they can actually take action on life and not just have life happening to them. If you can invite them into those type of conversations and reflections, the most potent time to do that is when they are fearful for losing everything that they recognize within themselves and what matters to them in their life. So I feel like the ER is a particularly potent place for me to have these type of conversations because they're more receptive to other possibilities because what they're doing right now is not working for them in some certain, in some way. And so there's, there's a little way in people before COVID were living relatively automatic. There was no break to life. And I get that until there was some stopgap that invited them to reconfront themselves. So the, the COVID experience invited everyone to contemplate their life in a certain way. And I'm sure everyone reconsidered survival in some way. And then they adapted accordingly. Either they disregarded it or because it was too painful, they went into Netflix or whatever it was. They found sanctity somewhere or people worked on their tools to become more adaptive. And I think of uh, books like by Nassim Taleb, who talks about anti-fragility, which anti-fragility is not greater robustness or resilience. It's your capacity for adaptability in the face of changing environments and experiences to life. And um, I feel like if uh, the majority of the people that we are, uh, are surrounded by, including ourselves, like I'm not blind to this. I'm, I still have it too. We have it everywhere in so many parts of our life. We have our barriers that we feel safe in finding refuge in. And so when we have our parents who are reaching for unhealthy foods, they're finding refuge in that for some part of them that has deemed that to be enough for their survival. So when we're asking someone in our lives to change something, an important question to ask is, are we asking them to change for ourselves or for them truly? Even when we know that it's, it could be beneficial to them, is it better if they're confronting themselves? Because let's say the thing that they're doing, the behavior that they're doing is preventing them from experiencing a really deep trauma. Now you want them to change that behavior because you know that it's hurting them. If they are confronted with that trauma, could it be so debilitating that it closes them off even further because they don't have the tools available or the, the, the chance that happens that they are hurt even more and then they close off. But now they were supposed to meet that trauma 
on your clock because you were unable to like deal with seeing that anymore. That's where our work lies. Your scripture lies in when you confront someone, especially that you love so deeply and you want to invite them into other things to see yourself and the thing that you're attached to trying to change within them. And then consider, I can only invite them to see themselves. I can't ask them or I shouldn't because it's not in their best interest to be pushed to change that. Cause I think if they're pushed very often, they're reminded of in childhood when they were told to do something as opposed to invited into it. So mm. if with any parents, like my dad didn't want to lose weight forever, but then when I invited him into a process, as opposed to telling him like you're, you're heavy and these are the things that are at risk for you, but none of those things were the things that invited change. But when we invited the playfulness of possibility of a diversion of diet, he was invited into other possibilities. And in those invitations, he saw himself differently. And then, yes, it was more on my terms, but it ended up becoming his terms on his pace by his curiosity being invoked again. So if we can invite curiosity, invitation, and play for the person and tell them that they're, they're whole as they are, but there are other possibilities available to you and not feel that like deadline. If they don't change something now, something imminent is going to happen. We're all meeting the same deadline. Like that we're all meeting the same human end of this thing. It's just going to be at a different pace. And maybe you can be more gentle on yourself and compassionate in a way that they will feel that too, that you're not asking them to be any other way. Yeah, that's beautifully put. I've definitely felt that same thing in the shift within myself is like, you, you know, loving someone so much and like knowing that this thing is like hurting them and physically like making them feel ill and sick and their energy's low. And it's like, you just want to more than anything, be like, stop doing that and eat better and this and that. And I know better. And what I found that does, it doesn't work. Obviously it's met with a lot of resistance and actually withdraws them more. And that's how, where I found the beauty of being present, right. And having that compassion where I've been able to look at my parents and I have developed this compassion of, of, oh, this is why they're this way. This is who they are. And it's when I've shown up to get to know them, not try and change them, but to get to know them and offer this presence of like, hey, mom, like, you know, tell me about your life or tell me about this. And she's opening up and just giving her space to actually talk through her own stuff where she's actually becoming curious of her own stories. And it's not about trying to change people, but really how we what I found is how we, how we really change the world and how we heal the world is through the power of being present with each other, because all anybody really wants is to be heard and to be seen. And, you know, there's always something special about you see somebody like, I don't really know what it is about this person, but they're just like, I don't know, their, their energy is so good. And like, I found the, it's, it's the power of presence. Like when you're around someone that's truly present and they're not lost in their thoughts or their mind, they're just holding space. It's like the most beautifully healing thing that you can offer anyone. Yeah. Yeah seen, heard, acknowledged, and perhaps understood. Mm. These are four things that I think are pillars for when we're in, in relation with the other um, and receive, right? Mm. right? If it's that partner. Uh, I had this, I've, as men especially, but the parental role when a mother, when a woman steps in especially too, but we all, when we're trying to support other, we impose or project at times what we feel is best for them. Mm. Powerful question that my girlfriend has invited over and over to me is ask me what I, what I need in that moment, as opposed to putting on to me what you think. And we may have some conversations where you, you, you're feeling 
hopelessness or powerlessness or pessimism or or whatever it may be, something that's negative that very often we're primed to like help that person get away from that negative thing. Where sitting with that negative thing and staying with what we perceive as negative is could be one of the most healing confrontational things that this person can say, whoa, this story of negativity that I have can be confronted in the safety of your space that you have. And I feel safe in reconfronting that story because I know that you're not going to try, or at least I feel that you're not going to try and fix me because there's nothing to be fixed. But before every single person that I shared this story to told me, dude, that thing is fucked up. Fix it now. And they say that in some way and like, Oh, I can help you. And it can be so gentle. Like, Oh, you're, you're way stronger than that. Like think positive. Here's a drink. Let's fuck. Whatever that thing was to get you away from that negativity can be absolved in recognizing that that negativity can be held and supported. And if you ask that partner, especially that partner who wants to be loved for the person they are and not fixed or molded into anything that you specifically want them to be, they get more permissive to their life. And you get to confront where you had probably been fixing others before because you felt like you had to lovingly. But now you can have more compassion for that process and more and for that partner as well, too. And I think they like greater love ensues there. And it's a really shitty feeling to have initially because you're like, I know I can help you. I know I can fix it. But sit and breathe through that and recognize that this person, even if they're shooting heroin up their arm, as challenging as it may be, they're giving love to themselves in that moment. And if they can be held and loved and meet you in their eyes, and maybe you don't even have to say a single thing, suddenly they see themselves for the first time that they didn't in a while where nowhere was safe. And it can be as big as uh, that. Well, when I say big, I'm projecting that. Or it could be as simple as just like a lie, a small lie. But if someone can feel safe to reconfront that truth, they see themselves. And authenticity ensues there. Mm, beautiful, man. I just, I felt so much love in my heart when you said that, like just showing up for people and just witnessing them for who they are, not trying to change them. It's beautiful. There's no right and wrong way to be, right? If anything anybody wants to experience, like love them for who they are, love them anyway. Um, I did want to get your perspective and kind of your evolution of the concept of God. And what that means to you. And I'm really fascinated with how there's parts of science and parts of spirituality that are kind of intermingled, right? And starting to come kind of full circle with the with the quantum physics and quantum mechanics and spirituality and like what the mystics were saying thousands of years ago. And now what they're trying to starting to find on like deeper layers of like the atom subatomic levels of particles and how we're all kind of waves of possibility. So I'd love to get your perspective on that and how your idea and concept of God has evolved throughout your spiritual and scientific kind of journey. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's a big one. It's a beautiful one though. I think the concept of God, then I think it's for every tool, for every concept, for every meaning that we invite into life, there's some human uh, interpretation that has hijacked the beauty of it. And then there's this reclamation that we have available to it as well, too. And a lot of the, the books that are written from like that we have, like from data that we have available, when we were like uh, archaeological data shows these entities above that uh, seem to have been present to that human beings believed in. And 
if you exist in chaos and disorder and rampant rape and whatever it is, people pillaging one another at the expense of another, these animals that we are, imposing the concept of you being watched over for the thing that you do sounds like a very compelling thing for you to start putting more order into your life and being more respectful and compassionate and all of these things. And I think a lot of religions found capacity, like power in leveraging or utilizing the capacity of this higher order thing being there above you, watching you. Oh, it's supporting you too, but it's watching you. So watch out for both of those things and make sure you do these things that are in line with, oh, we have these invitations for you that are in line with this religion specifically. So now you're, you're in French, you say dirigé, but you're guided and directed into certain pathways that upholds the view of what you have from this higher order being. But the concept of I didn't exist for uh, up until about a thousand BC, at least that's from what data shows. And so when people had thoughts, they were interpreted and, and, and concepts that were reflecting in their mind, these feelings, they gave credence and credit for these thoughts that were happening to something outside of themselves. And because there was no understanding of the thoughts that was happening within us, we gave credit to these gods and these gods of Zeus and all these things in the Greek mythologies were uh, interpretations of these thoughts that people came together to interpret there. But then when we started recognizing that thoughts belong more to us, there was a slow reclamation of it. But God had already installed itself in different religions and uh, countries and, and empires around the world. So this concept, because it's so powerful and powerfully leverageable, by many people who are in positions of power has persisted through these days. And I feel like, again, in the same light that we are living at a time, a renaissance where we're, we're reconfronting a lot of these concepts of what, what are the stories that we've been told. If a human being came to this world and had never been told of the story of a power that's above them, would they have ever have considered the concept of God? I'd be really curious and I would lean more towards no. But if they were told that you are your God and they were primed to think that, I think they would have greater credibility and objective uh, belief in something like that. And I think now when I was a kid to the times where I would do really good on an exam and my mom would say, thank God. And I'm like, but I did that on the test. I was the one that worked my butt off. Why am I giving credit to this higher, higher order being that I've never seen or experienced? But what is God that we come to? And like God is the, I, I feel the higher power that we qualitatively come into contact within ourselves. And the credit that we've been having that we give to something higher power pays homage to the story that we have that we feel incredibly unsafe to the hostility of life that takes us all, that we make us feel a little safer when there's this higher power above us. And every religion, parent, and probably 99.99999% of the world finds sanctity in believing that there's this higher power that's there. But the great confrontation that we have that absolves you to be the greatest source of power and the God to your life is in exploring that story and recognizing what would it mean and truly going to the core of what would it mean if you're not watched by any higher order or anything. You're completely on your own. If you're completely on your own and you are the God to your own human experience and then life before and after, like the great mystery before you came to this world and the mystery after, what is that God complex or God uh, abundance that you have that's available to you? 
And I feel like the greatest source of you actually confronting that is making space for you to give credence first that you are your God. Because if not, even questioning it could be too fearful for some because they've been told to even question God can be something so negative. And so you're always trapped to this, this story of even the reflections being under the eyes or, or, or uh, uh, surveillance of other. So if you are able to reclaim that, and I invite everyone to, I think like, what would your life be like if there was no one watching over you? If there was no story that was ever told about some higher order, some higher power, because what ends up happening, I believe, because we believe in that support, that higher power could have been all of the archetypes of everyone that was sources of support for you to continue life. But now you can harness all of that and it's available to you at any point when you see that God within yourself. Well said. What about the people that's, I mean, it, it is crazy because the story of religion, even to question that is blasphemy, right? And it's like the fear of that was created by something watching me. If I say I'm God, then it's like, there's so much fear around that. I think it really stems from this, this ultimate fear of death, right? And a lot of religions use the fear of what happens when you die. Are you going to burn an eternal hell or go to heaven for eternity? And they create this story that you want to believe and attach to these belief systems because you don't want to be the person that when you die, you go live in hell for eternity. And I think when you, and I think, I don't know the quote, but it's like, if you're able to die while living, then you can fully understand that there's this freedom, that death is just a story, right? Which leads me into that next question of what do you think kind of happens when we die? Well, you, that is one of the most important concepts that allows the opportunity for reclamation of you here in this lifetime. There's no human being. Let's think with all the technology we have, with all the stories we have, there are so few people who have died for more than eight to 10 minutes, maybe an hour and 45 minutes if you were frozen, that can come back to this world. And I know there has been people like uh, Zach Bush who shared stories of people who died and they speak about when they came back that they felt safe there. They didn't feel alone anymore. They didn't feel rejected by world. These people had their the egoic stories that prevent that were preventing them from life, that were the barriers to experiencing life that were present to them. And in that moment that they passed or that they that they went into this dream state or the lifelessness state temporarily, they reconfronted life on the other side of all those stories. I feel like religion. And everyone that can, that buys into afterlife, if you buy in, you have a tendency to hijack your, your willingness to be fully present for this life experience. And religion has softened that. And I see it in the ER every single day when someone is dying, that we normalize death. That, okay, they went to a better place. Okay, they're safe. They never had the story of confrontation of the possibility that, whoa, maybe mom and dad went nowhere. If you confront that story, it's going to be horribly graphic and disgusting because we want to believe that we live forever. It's the safest thing to think. And the spiritual community has hijacked it in some way that, oh, when we as well, not hijacked, but they've willfully bought into their own version of the same story that, oh, my life and my, my energy continues on forever. And so I don't actually die. Maybe you do. But in, in, in buying into that story, we don't fully commit to here. Yes, you have beautiful, intermittent, fleeting experiences. But I feel like life, if it had a deadline, 
like that Promethean journaling that you've journaled your that your funeral day. When you journal that funeral day, the appreciation of all the lives and the foundations and the connective experiences and the quality of life that's available suddenly becomes so much more succulent. That steak tastes delicious when you're on that last bite if you're present to it because it's your last thing. If life were to be interpreted that way, and I see it again, like the moment the person's taking that last breath, you see the body relax into nothingness anymore. Life is being taken from them. And when we believe or subscribe to the possibility of afterlife, it's so confrontational with every ideology that we have. But I feel like it has, it hijacks us or it has the potential to pull us away from the opportunity that life is offering us right now for to uh, you be fully immersed in it. And Stephen Pressfield, he's like, he says, your ego doesn't tell you that you're never going to write that script. It tells you that you'll write it tomorrow. But no breath is guaranteed to anyone. There's no day that's guaranteed to anyone. There's no next hug that's guaranteed to anyone. So hug like it's not, don't hug like it's your last hug, but hug like it's your last hug. Breathe in that breath like it's your last breath. Taste the succulence of it. Feel your body for maybe the first time that you haven't in a while. And in doing these type of things, these processes, we progressively step back. And as men, stepping back is stepping back down because most of us exist up here in the thinking part of the mind. We experience life through the perception of thoughts and figuring it out. But you return back to the body. And I feel like life and death is felt. Um, and a woman confronts you into the dying of the story where you felt like you couldn't feel safe to even live in your body anymore. And a, a life that's felt as much as you think and thought as much as you felt feel is something that's abundantly available for us. And um, life is tasted that way again. And um, if, if we were to think that, I, I, I really feel that if we can reclaim that story of afterlife to think for now, I'm going to subscribe that there's none of that. See how life tastes even for one week. Wow. So what do you, so what do you think happens when you die? (laughs) (laughs) Do you, do you think nothing or do you like just to think of that because it helps you live more presently in the now? Like, do you honestly think that when, I mean, when it's, when you die, that's just blackness, just nothingness. Well, think is asking me what my mind feels versus what does my body feel? And my body feels that my body feels that there is a continuity of a type of energy that's going to transmute into something else. Mm. My thinking mind finds sanctity in that because that means that, oh, I'm safe to survive in some other way. But I, I want to trust that feeling part of my body that is not I want to trust. I'm trusting that feeling part of my body that's saying that my presence is greatest felt here. And if my death experience is going to be the last human experience that I feel corporally, I want to be fully present to that. Don't give me any numbing medicine because if I'm going to this next realm, whatever it may be, maybe it's returning to source because that sounds super sexy. What does that mean? What if returning to source is like you're, you're squeezed through a string and you're, you become just the shit of who you are and that's it. And you're, you're going to be squeezed through this portal and stretched into nothingness. Like, that sounds pretty fucking painful, but no, we, we feel the goodness of returning to source and oh my goodness. No. So I, I subscribe to like wanting to actually leave that to all possibilities of not knowing and leaving that great mystery to what it all is mystery. And that is what every human has. And like we can like available to us, like we can leave everything to not figuring it out 
and leaving the taste of the mystery available to it, not from ignorance, but from choice. Mm, That's beautiful. I love that because every single path is just a story that we go on and all of it leads infinitely outward from the present moment, moment that we're in. And you have to go on the path of searching in order to find out that you're right where you're meant to be in this present moment. This is the only thing that exists. And any story that you create around what might happen when you die is taking you away from living fully present, even into the experience of death, like being present from that experience and not attaching to an idea of what it is. But you have to, I mean, it's, it's like the, the exploration and you know, asking these unanswerable questions of the universe what I found is they're all just concepts and stories and we, and it's fun to explore, but all of it leads back into sitting back, knowing that we don't know anything and it all is just a huge mystery. And when you fully understand that, it, it allows you to just be present and in awe yeah. as it unfolds around you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Carl Jung, I'm, I, I'm paraphrasing him. I know everyone in our community loves him, but, uh, he says life is the mystery mystery in between two great mysteries. And like, mm. I think the more we can keep it that way, and I apply this to my life as best as possible, is like confirm that to the best of your ability that you're going to survive this moment. Because chances are you're going to until you won't. But can you leave mystery, awe, wonder, and curiosity available as best you can? And the figuring it out mind, especially mind that I Intel, like apply intelligence as much as possible in the figuring it out mode, recognizing how many times that has hijacked me from the moment it's been sad. And like, I've grieved those moments. I remember when I was in Iceland and I'm on this beautiful, uh, this beautiful waterfall with these birds flying through these cliffs and it's called Gleamer, G-L-Y-M-U-R. And um, I'm looking at it and I'm seeing this and I'm saying, wow, my senses are connected to taking information right now, but I'm not even present for this moment. And I was, I was met with sadness in a moment that like was completely available to me to be completely different. And so two years later, I went back and I stood on that exact same rock as stone facing that same area. And I, the, I felt the temperature. I saw the birds. I heard them. They were enveloping me. The, the waterfall and this, the power of the water was just surging. And it was like I could feel it in my core. And I wasn't just perceiving life. I was witness and experience to an sorry, I was ex, not only witnessing, I was experiencing it. And I was beyond the words. And the moment I put words to it, it would take me away from the experience again. And so when I left moment, the, the moment there to the mystery and just the presence, presence ensued, and I was able to taste life in a very qualitatively different way and found like you can keep talking your way through life, but life is felt more through silence and stillness. Stillness is sexy for this reason, because you sit and you feel and you're going to feel your shit maybe initially, but you also taste life. Mm. That's beautiful, man. Thanks for sharing that. I, what, what was coming up for me when you're talking is how, you know, how sad it is that, you know, I'll, I'll be looking at a sunset or, you know, when I'm traveling a bunch or with people and something beautifully amazing happens in nature and instantly everybody takes their phones out and they like go to capture the moment. And I've learned very quickly. I mean, when I was traveling the country and I was like documenting the experience and I was creating YouTube videos, 
I realized very quickly that every time I was trying to create something for other in the experience, I wasn't actually present for the experience as it was going. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I did ayahuasca, I was actually one of my intentions going was like, what am I supposed to do with this? Am I supposed to continue to try and create and become like a quote unquote influencer? Like I was very, having a lot of resistance to like not being present. And I remember when I was at my ayahuasca retreat, there was this photographer there that had been a professional photographer for years, for decades. And he's like, you know what, Joe, there came a point when I realized every time I got the perfect shot and I would click that button and it would capture it, the shutter would close. And I actually wasn't present for the moment that I had just captured. Mm -hmm. And I was just like this deep, profound lesson of like, wow, like every time we go to capture something, we're actually not present for the experience. And what are we actually capturing it for? to prove that we were there. I mean, and for my personal experience, I know a lot of people do go through their phones and look at their cameras. And I think it is good to have like some memories and stuff, but I've definitely just surrendered to the fact that I'm just, I'd rather be present for the experiences it's unfolding. Cause there is no way to, even in a, even through the lens of a, a picture lens, it's like that, that still wasn't the moment. Right. <laughs> it's just 2d vision of like what this beautiful experience was that I just got to have. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then that's, that's a great concept where you think like how many people went to places that they weren't actually there. Mm. Right. But, and, but they only relive it through the, the photo. But I mean, if that's the only tool that's available for them to have a recollection of a part of their life, that's, that's kind of beautiful in and of itself. And maybe, maybe the invitation there is like when someone is somewhere, if you're listening, the next time you're somewhere, Tell yourself or invite yourself with intentionality because intentionality is the way that you override the automatism to the life. You only have two pictures available to that experience that you're currently having. And the rest of the time is dedicated to the experiential, like taking in of that place that you are with as much presence, awareness, consciousness, and intentionality. So two pictures are available. And so if you can, with that camera, just like what you were saying, that shutter is not present where the camera was taking the picture. Maybe the button and you are met with, you breathe into that moment. And when you press that button, you're looking at the same view that your camera is getting. And so mm-hmm. you look up to it. So your camera, when you're looking at the picture in reflection, the picture is not the place that you remember the place for, but it's a, it's a component of a checkpoint that takes you back to the experiences that you're able to now sit with and relive. And now that moment hasn't necessarily been hijacked and there's more presence that can ensue as well there. And so like where this tool that's beautiful for us to capture things ends up robbing us, we can reinvite the capacity for this tool to actually be really effective for you to, to reclaim presence. I love that. That's really beautiful. I'm going to start using that for sure. <laughs> um, I'd love to get your perspective on where we're headed as a collective. Like what, where do you see the world headed, especially with this kind of global pandemic and you're, you've been on the front lines kind of fighting it, but you know, the big questions that I've been dancing with, and I just like to explore them because I'm totally surrendered into the unknown of not, I don't think there's any way, way to really predict what's, what's actually going to happen um, with all of the, all the stories that are out there. Uh, but I'd love to get your perspective on, on what do you think this whole kind of collective environment's going to look like and where we're headed as, you know, a human race on planet earth. Um, a few things that come to mind first is when I'm wearing the mask in the hospital, um, I see newborn children, young kids, 
and they're missing the opportunity to fine tune and hone in on one of the most important languages that they learn before they learn words, which is body language. And they're, they're losing the, they're not losing, they're missing the opportunity for them to actually tap into experiencing what a human being is. And I feel like these masks that are being brought into this world is uh, creating a barrier for human beings to, to engage with one another on that humanistic component. Close already takes us away from you, me seeing you as a human. And I, instead I see you as the projection of what you want to be received as through the identity when you're carrying yourself through world. So if I'm a doctor, I'm wearing my scrubs and my white coat. So you identify those type of things when you're coming to a hospital and you see me there. Um, I think people are coming to become like the collective needs to be mindful about what we're representing to the world and what's being hijacked. I, I keep saying hijacked, but I don't want to say hijacked, but uh, is being a barrier that could be avoided that is being brought in in the name of safety and health with masks. And I know that's another conversation in and of itself, but like that's preventing us from like that human to human connection and component. This, this moment right now that we have with COVID is so potent as an opportunity where people are feeling fearful, contemplative, uh, or completely uh, rejecting whatever their way of life is that they want to perceive moving forward, like with this experience. And they're doing it on an individual level. And where they find refuge is in others who have similar ideologies. And what I, I'm finding that the internet makes us available to are these these bear holes, these portals, these tunnels of people going into communities where they find shared ideologies. And I hope that when we're there, we can continue to discern, are we returning together to the human components of what life is qualitatively together? Or are we trying to serve the egoic things that are different versions of constructs of greed and uh, accumulation and consumption at the expense of the world, at the expense of, expense of nature, and the nature within ourselves. If we're stepping further away from that, I think there's like two dichotomies of like, like the dichotomy of like us who are trying to tap in and touch more of who we are and be inviting others into that. Whereas others are leveraging this opportunity to where they see people's fear, they're leveraging it more. And now they're making more money and they're sucking more out of the system. And when people are leveraged that way, they have to depend more and more on their ego because less places ultimately end up being safe. So in the capacity that we have for the communication tools that we have more abundantly available for travel, for presence, allows us to bring more of that availability of that the story confrontation of how people are carrying themselves to be able to be re-experienced, re-explored and reclaimed. And I feel like you're going to have people grieving a lot of the stories where they recognize that I can't project my journey of growth and self-awareness onto previous generations and the generations now who don't even have this tool available to them. And life can be experienced and harnessed best by me doing it myself for me first, not to be seen by anyone. And it's going to be a lot of story grievances that we, I hope we allow ourselves to feel more because I'm sure you've seen with COVID numbing tools are at like an all-time high in some way and this is what happens when people are confronted with the pains that they haven't experienced in a really long time so um like like so many things that so many industries that need attention for humans people are either going to double down on their egoic not looking at what the impact is 
or you're going until it's too late, or you're going to have people that are going to look and say, fuck this industry that I'm in is, is fragmented in such and such way. It's stealing the soul of the human experience and it's hurting life and, and the, and our possibility of continuity of life. Uh, if we don't take action now. And I think what we all collectively come to terms with is if we keep on the path that we are living ab abundantly in a way that abundance is misinterpreted as over gluttonous consumption, nature can only tolerate our way that we act in a certain way until it, it no longer is able to. And it's not that the world is going to end. The world as we see it is going to end. Earth and world are different things. We share this earth, but our perception of the world is individual to the person. And so the earth and its capacity to sustain us and living things will cease and we'll succumb to that. And that's going to be what the great travesty is if we don't acknowledge that specific thing, that earth will continue to survive. Yes, it'll hurt, but it'll hurt in our capacity to continue on the way that it is able to sustain us as living beings and all the inhabitants and all future inhabitants. And so like, do we pay homage collectively to the understanding of that specific story, harness more love together that we've got for one another, bring more presence, love and self-awareness and bring people to confront the stories of, and make sure we don't contribute to the hopelessness, powerlessness, uh, defeat, lack of worth, unlovability, all the core wounds that we're carrying. And we start shifting that lovingly in a way that makes us persevere and and live for as long as we're meant to in present in greater presence and like uh welcomingness for the community that we've been able to live like like what's the right word like really harness that life and i know that was a i went on a tangent there but i feel like when we do that we tap into what the quality of life is available to us and we leave it better for our future uh, co-inhabitants that have their life experience coming available to them too. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think, I mean, what I want to, cause, cause I feel the same way. Right. And it's like, we got to, we got to change. Obviously there's things that need to change, but for the listeners and for myself, like what can I do practically to help change, make that change? Like how can I help shift it? Cause it seems like such a daunting task for just any one individual. And I think that's what a lot of people feel so overwhelmed with that. It's like, well, what can I do? So they just, you know, we all are contributing, to, contributing at some level to the systems that are, we're talking about here that are doing the things that are going to lead to this kind of devastation. So it's, yeah. what do you think like the individual person can do in this moment or moving forward to really help shift mm -hmm. the collective? Get to know yourself, see yourself, because you're the way that you're acting and showing up in the world thinking, behaving, inviting others into projecting for others to receive you is based on certain narratives that you felt had to be a certain way. And saying that today, I'm going to agree to continue to see myself every available opportunity that I have. And when I'm not seeing myself, when I finally do invite that to other perceptions of myself, now I'm going to apply what I have now seen that I didn't before carrying forward. And in doing that also, you become more effective with certain places that you want to put your time. Because when you don't know yourself, you're reaching everywhere. That person who doesn't have a career yet may reach the six to 10 things and dabble their foot in. But I have this feeling, I have this curiosity, like this hypothesis that 
because we are so constrained to the amount of time and energy that we can put towards certain things, but we are exposed to so many things. If you were to just look at your window of perception with all the things sensor sensorially that's coming in, our body interprets one thing and it focuses on that in the same light. If you can put your time and energy towards one specific thing and become an expert in that, that's where you're going to be the most effective. And our ego has this interesting game that's interlaced with it, where when you're onboarding a new skill, let's say it's the piano, your brain says, oh, I've seen Mozart playing or uh, Oliver Arnold's, Olafur Arnold's, this beautiful pianist, Ludovico Ainuti. You, these, these people that just serenade you with music beyond the words and you hear the piano, but then you go and it sounds like you're breaking the piano when you're pressing the keys. How many people don't touch that piano key ever again? because that feeling that they had was nowhere in line with the expectation that they had of the impact that they would have by engaging with that thing. If you start, if we start inviting in the process that this is a place that my ego doesn't feel safe right now, or is not being met with that good feeling that I expected or intended to have, but it's part of a process by me putting myself and investing myself with as much presence to this thing that I'm doing right now, as often as I feel is necessary, I'm going to become progressively more effective because my ego is going to trust this space more. And I'm going to eventually, if I'm intending, expecting to get somewhere with my intention and daily practice, I'm going to get to that thing, whether it's meditating better, whether it's sleeping better, whether it's greater presence and gentleness and slowness when you're intimate with your partner, whether it's at work. And now those 10 things that you felt like were really stressing yourself, your mind day by day, like the industries that you feel powerlessness on. When we remain in the chaos and we don't spend any time with that thing specifically, our parts don't feel held and they continue to, to feel that. But when you come back to experiencing and reflecting on those individual foundational stories of awareness, consciousness, intentionality, and presence, you see yourself from the lens of that story that was challenging you the most and if it's an industry specifically that you feel is hindered and no one is taking action on it, you've checked in with yourself now because you have greater sense of awareness. Can you have an impact on that? And if so, in recognizing that there are other places that you're challenged by, if this is the place that you feel most drawn to and most effective in, you're going to take action. And what's amazing with that is you feel this valiant effort of the hero. You're drawn to it. And what taps in from the start of our conversation is your purposefulness and purposefulness will draw you in and compel you to continue to be effective and figure things out and be present to it as much as possible. And it won't feel as much of a work or a task. It'll feel an expression of your soul that's being met with the thing that you're now putting your time and effort towards. And I feel like if we do these regular check-ins with ourselves as we're putting our effort towards that thing. It's not going to feel like we're doing work and we're exhausted. You may feel exhaustion, but you're not exhausted because you're not refusing your soul. You're doing the thing that you're, you're feeling guided towards. And those other eight or nine things that now still need your attention and they challenge you, you're able to dialogue it better. You recognize that you're putting your efforts here. And then that person who saw that thing maybe says, whoa, I saw this person putting their effort and time towards that one specific thing that they were drawn to soulfully. And I can see their purposefulness being so effective there. And, and now maybe I can do the same thing here. And that's how the emulation of the human 
is able to invite the other human to do the same thing as well, but for them on their own path and not them recreating what they see you doing specifically. And then they, everyone wants to be a singer or a, a football guy or a, a doctor. They do it because they are hearing what their soul is calling them into. Mm. Yeah. Full circle to the purpose. I love it. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, what if this whole thing is happening, right? Instead of being lost and debilitated by the overwhelming fact that there's nothing I can do to change it. What if we look at it as an opportunity that the world is the way it is for us to have an opportunity to step into the thing that we were meant to do, to go play big, to be the change that we want to see, to actually give us purpose and give us a meaning, giving so, give us something to fight for, give us something to show up for. Mm. If we look at it as an opportunity to go do the thing that can make a difference, it actually gives us meaning and gives us full circle into the whole point that we're here. Right. Because right. without this opportunity, if everything was just hunky dory, what would be the point of living? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, there is a core wound that a lot of us find in that if we don't do something that causes a difference, our sense of worth or purposefulness can start being challenged again because we find so much of our human contribution to the community in there. And if we can reclaim that just through awareness of that story that we're buying into, you still end up doing the same action that has the same outcome, but the intention and presence that you have as you're carrying yourself through is completely different. And people feel that that difference where it's a robotic output, like a doctor very often, versus the soulful connection of a person that's helping support you through a health journey that you're currently feeling challenged by. And that you also have this other thing that is debilitating you from really experiencing it. So just shifting that invites a completely different quality to the same thing that is point A and point B. The energy you bring to it, and that's how we shift the world, right? Is by the energy that we're bringing to the things that we're... It's more of like the, the concept of, of being rather than doing. Yeah. And when you can surrender into who you are here to be, that is actually a very courageous act. It's not a passive act. It's actually something that's calling you to something that is probably outside your comfort zone, it's going to challenge you in different ways, but it's rather than going and doing it, you're being it. And the energy of that is completely different. Right. And uh, that being redefines itself almost every moment. And it's, it's, so that person you, we want to be is it's challenging because when we be something, when we are something that feels good and it's received by the world, there's a tendency to want to hold on to it. It's like, no, I'm, I'm staying at this nest. I'm never leaving. I want to be this thing. But How quickly it becomes doing, right? Yeah, exactly. So now I'm going to do what I can to hold on to this thing that I am. But life is to be felt, not to be done. And uh, that's, that's how I perceive it very often. Where before it was, there was an outcome, an output thing. But now it's in feeling it. That's where life is the most effective. And we, you don't identify who you are. You just are it. And that's, that's life is like you, you, you embody that being. And I feel like men, if you're ever forgetting who you are and you're thinking about it, women have this incredibly potent capacity to remind you of the man that you are beyond just this thing. And you're going to feel yourself, but you may feel some of the rejection of yourself that has been present for a while and progressively spending more time feeling that part of you which very often women make you just confront this beautiful aspect of yourself allows you to re-experience what life is. And it's, it, I feel like it's to be felt. 
Beautiful, man. Beautiful. And I really appreciate you taking time to have this conversation, man. You've dropped a lot of wisdom. Um, any final thoughts that you'd like to share with the listeners um, that might be of impact or use for them on this journey going into the unknown realities that are eminent? Yeah. Um, I saw it in a journey on psilocybin <laughs> 10 years ago. I got to always be mindful because I don't know who's, which body's listening to this, but um, mushrooms have brought me to some deep insights of my, I, I want to give credence to it being from myself, not being from some other source, not being from somewhere in space. We're all like stardust. Yes. But we're coalesced into this life being that gets to experience human life for a moment. And, uh, when I was in psilocybin, one story that, uh, a thought that came up that I reflected on was why is the man that finds sanctity in himself? And when the journey was over, I went and looked on Google to see if that comes from somewhere and uh, it was nowhere. And so I, I tattooed it on my chest and it's a reminder for myself all the time. Wise is the person that finds sanctity in themselves, and sanctity is found on, on, on the other side of all of the stories that we tell ourselves. And it's also found in the recognition and holding of the stories that we felt we needed to live by in order to continue to survive. And so that gives love to the barriers, which are our ego, like where our ego is embedded, as well as that loving self that's always there and ever present for us. And um, uh, I, I just recently put up a website, drkabusi.com, that if anyone wants to dive into these type of conversations that they want to explore uh, together, I'm not going to heal you. I'm not going to fix you, but I'll invite you to see yourself through dialogue. And, um, and I make that space available. I never did this before, but I feel like that's an option that's available to some people. So if anyone wants to, I made that avenue open there. That's beautiful. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, yeah, that will all be in the show notes. And if, is there anywhere else people can follow you or find you any kind of social platforms that you're active on, or is that the best place? Yeah. It's, uh, well, for now, I guess, uh, medium Kave Kabusi. So medium.com slash Kavikavusi. Uh, I'll give that link. And then Instagram is a good one. Interestingly, I made us an app called that now Linktree is pretty much that app. I made that four years before Linktree. And because of partnership stagnancy, it never came to fruition the way that it could have. But at Linktree was what I had wanted to do for people to be able to share all of where they exist online in one breath. So whenever I hear that question, a part of me is challenged. Missed opportunity. <laughs> Well, when you think about that, it's a story where I thought a lot of things. I thought I'd liberate my parents financially. Uh, I would be financially abundant. And now I see that. So it's a, it's a simple question confronts with the trauma, right? And that's how life is because I perceived it that way. Mm, beautiful. Well, brother, I really appreciate the time, man. Let's definitely do this again. And if you guys enjoyed this episode, definitely reach out to Kave. Let him know how he impacted your life. And uh, reach out to me. Let, you, let me know what you think. And uh, definitely share it, review it, rate it, and uh, let me know if you'd like to have Kaveh back on to hear some more of his uh, amazing wisdom. Thanks, brother. Much love, brother. And thank you for everyone for listening. I'll be more succinct next time, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We, we stopped recording and Kaveh had uh, a few more words of wisdom for you guys to, to integrate this experience if you got impact from it or any kind of transformative experience throughout your days. For every experience that you have, fear forward. 
make a little space between that experience and the next, because there are distractions and the next experience abundantly available that are always there. But in making an opportunity for that experience to be digested, contemplation and integration happens in silence and stillness. And so after this conversation is done or whatever it is, let's say just for this conversation first, sit for two to three minutes and let what's meant to be digested have an opportunity for that to happen. Because we have a part in our brain called the thalamus that processes the space between short-term and long-term memory based on the information that comes in. And if you have the equivalent of 60 or 70 posts that you scroll through an Instagram in a moment, very few of them actually get digested through. But if you were to scroll slowly through it, more of it actually has a time to be digested. And the same thing happens with every individual experience you have. The next time you listen to a beautiful podcast, next time you have an intimate experience, listen and sit and be still and feeling what just happened and transpired. Beautiful. Thanks, brother. I love you. Love you too, dude. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to Kave for the amazing wisdom and shares and vulnerability. Sharing from personal experience, I found, is really the best way to share because, you know, like we talked about in the podcast, everybody knows how to fix other people, but it really doesn't matter because if you know how to fix other people, then you should really take some time and look into yourself and see where you can improve your life and where your presence and love is needed in your own reality. And I think by doing that and sharing from our own experiences is really how we have the impact on others through embodying the things and the change that we want to see in the world. Uh, Thanks for listening. I love you all deeply. Uh, Remember to review the podcast, rate the podcast, share the podcast. We're really trying to grow this thing to the next level. And for those of you that have been listening since the beginning and following on my journey, I appreciate you so much. I love you deeply. Um, And, you know, I'd like to get more people from, uh, you know, my following general public on the podcast. So if you feel called, like you have a cool story to share and you'd like an opportunity to be on the podcast, reach out to me. Um, Probably the best way is to follow my newsletter and respond to it. And uh, we'll see what we can do. Share a little bit about your story and uh, how you believe the universe works, what we would talk about. God, spirituality, the unanswerable questions, all of it. Love you all. Talk soon. Peace.